All right, so here's how we're going to come at a couple of things this semester is um, I'm going to take a few weeks and talk about some topics that have been asked about, but I want to give more detail on. Some will be really deeply theological and maybe even academic like today. Um, and then as soon as we're done with this topic, which may take two weeks, um, just depends, then, uh, then I want to pick up the next section to be, which is very, um, I don't know, kind of in the middle of the news, which is I, I want to talk about kind of how we as Christians deal with the issues of sexuality within our culture, um, sex concepts and gender concepts and stuff like that. And so um, I'll be jumping into those as soon as we're done with this one, which may be next week, it may be the week after that or whatever. So just be aware of that, that that's going to come up. Um, it'll be real similar. I talked with the youth about it uh, about three or four months ago. And so um, it'll, it'll be pretty similar to that. But man, that's, this, that is a huge topic today. Um, but I want to dive into something today that I think is a very, um, in my mind, so let me, let me tell you how I came to, to really become fascinated with this, is I was driving on a long trip, and, and here's what struck me in the midst of the trip. I started thinking about the things that, that, doesn't, that God can't do. You know, that, that old, somebody had that, the things that God can't do statements. And I don't like that because it's, it's not technically accurate. Um, there is a sense in which obviously God can't do certain things, but it's always because he has determined that he would not do those things, which means he can't do them because God can't lie or go back on himself or whatever. But certainly at some point in God's existence, those things were open to his options. He's God. No one could tell him, omnipotent, the most powerful, all-powerful means. No one else can tell you no. Only you can tell you no. And so it's, it's, I'm always struggling with the things that God can't do. I'm always like, that. in my mind, it's like that takes away the opportunity to worship. Oh, God can't do that. I'd, I'd rather come at it from a, God didn't do that, and I should appreciate it. And so what struck me in the midst of that conversation, somebody, you know, that's, that's happening on the radio or something, and as I'm driving down the road, was thinking about the fact that, that the question, could Jesus have sinned when he was on earth? And, and the correct technical theological answer, so you'll know, is no. Jesus Christ could not have sinned while on earth. But, but what I don't like is that we jump to that answer too quickly. Like, I think it's right, but when we jump there so quickly, we miss out on what that means. And so the consequences was I began to study the hypostatic union, meaning, so hypostatic, just, it just means foundational or substance. Um, and and it's, again, it really is kind of a misnomer um, to call the, the hypostatic union. So here's the, I'm going to give you the, the quick tour of the philosophy behind this. One of the big questions in Christian philosophy is how many substances there are. So, for example, the Bible tells us there's a visible creation and an invisible creation. So there is a spiritual substance and a physical substance, a material substance. So those are two different things. One is spiritual, one is physical. So they're two different substances, to use the, the philosophical term. So during early on, part of the conversation was, how many different substances did Jesus have? And they thought that was significant. Now, the truth is, we also, so that's the, the debate in Christianity and Christian philosophy and theology is how many substances do we have? So are we one, two, or three is typically where it comes down to. Are we material only? Are we material and immaterial? Or are the two immaterial parts broken down into spirit and soul? So are we body and, and spirit, which the soul is just another way of saying spirit or an aspect of the spirit, or are we body, soul, and spirit? 
I will tell you, if there's a theological stance that is really, really dependent on it being one of those three, um, especially the last two, it's not, I wouldn't put too much faith in it. The truth is we don't know. We can argue really, really well either three or two. I mean, really well based on Scripture. Um, and so it's not very clear whether or not we are just a material and an immaterial or whether we are body, soul, and spirit, and soul and spirit are two different substances. Now, some of you already are thinking, like, why does this matter? And really, from a day-to-day life application, it doesn't. Um, But it matters if we're going to talk about... So the mistake that was made was, was God, as Jesus Christ, made of multiple substances, even more than just humans? But that ended up being not the correct question. It wasn't the matter of how many substances Jesus had. It was how many natures he had. So let's talk, let me teach you that word. Nature, actually, but in order to teach you, I've got to teach you yet another one. Nature means those things about you that cannot change and you still be what you are. Okay? So the things that cannot change about you are called your essence, essential traits. So I'm going to simplify it. If I draw a circle... And I, and, and I do it well, and you all say, oh, that's a circle. But then I draw a purple thing that looks just like it. Now what is it? It's a circle. Because color is not an essential trait of a circle. Color is an accidental trait. You can change the color without changing what it is. You following now? So what happens if I make it bigger, but otherwise it's identical? Now what is it? Oh, it's still a circle, because size is not an essential trait of circle. Now, what if I put it in a different location, but not draw it? Now, what is it? Circle, because location is not an essential trait of a circle. Now, I'm going to put four corners on it. Now, what is it? Okay, I just changed what it is, right? Like, it's, it's no longer a circle. Circles are round. Round is an essential trait of a circle. If you change that... You change what it is. Those are called essential traits. Accidental traits are the things that can change, and it still stays what it is. So now, that's just circles. Imagine if you start asking questions like, so what is the nature of a circle? It is two-dimensional and round. Pretty much it. Now, what if I start asking, like, what is the nature of a chair? Think how hard that is to answer. So what is, what is a chair? What makes a chair a chair, and what counts as a chair? So if I sit on a stump, is it a chair? Is sitting on it what makes it a chair? Or, or, or what if I have a, a little bitty chair that's this big that goes in my child's dollhouse? Is that a chair? I can't sit on it. Is it a chair? Like, you see why philosophers spent years of their lives sitting around in big rooms before they had television and arguing about this kind of stuff, Right? And, and they had great, huge debates about that. Now, imagine you start asking a question like, what does it mean to be human? What, is the, what are the essential traits of being human versus the accidental traits? Or being a man or being a woman? And what are the, what are the essential traits of being God? And so there are certain answers to that that we would have, but understanding what are the essential traits. And by the way, if you want to understand in the simplest form what it means that God is three in one, it is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have the same essence. The exact same essential traits. The things that make God, God, these three persons share. The accidental traits, the things that can be different about you, but you're still God, they do not share. 
So they are different in regards to their accidental traits, but they are identical as far as their essential traits. Therefore, they are one God, even though they are three persons. Now, that's the simplest way, if you can imagine, of understanding the triune nature of God. One of the other great, and we can talk about that some not if you want to, but one of the other great mysteries for us as Christians is the fact that the Bible clearly teaches us that Jesus Christ came and lived as a man. That his nature, the, the traits that are essential to being a man, Jesus Christ had. And the traits that are essential to being God, Jesus Christ had. Now, the idea of having multiple natures should not challenge us. We all have multiple natures. All of us do. So you might be a father and a son. That those, those, you, those are two different. What does it mean to be son and what does it mean to be father are very, very different things. In fact, very different things. And yet one person can share both of those natures. You can be born a son and not have the nature of father until something happens and then you take on the nature of father as well, the essential traits of being a father. So, or you can be a bachelor. But here's the problem. You can't be a bachelor and be married. Because the problem is those two natures contradict each other, right? So the problem is not did Jesus share multiple natures. We all do that. The problem was it seems like God divinity, Godhood, is in contradiction with humanity. So that's what creates the problem for us, is these two themes seem to be contradictory to one another. You can't be God and man. By definition, there are certain things that come with being God that by definition do not come with being man. So that's what creates the big philosophical question of the hypostatic union. How is it possible that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man? What is called in the Latin, verus homos, truly God. I mean, truly man. Verus homos, truly man. Verus deus, truly God. And that's the stance that Christianity takes. Um, that the, and the church fathers debated about it for a couple hundred years before coming to an absolute standard. We are now convinced that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Now, as if you're raised evangelical like I was, the idea of Jesus being God is not hard. You, that's almost intuitive. You've been raised with that so clearly from day one that Jesus Christ was God that I don't, I don't even really, honestly, in this audience, feel the need to go into much detail to try to convince you that Jesus was divine. Because for most of us, that's not a problem. We've been raised with that, that Jesus Christ was truly God is something we're very comfortable with, most of us. What most of us are really uncomfortable with is the fact that Jesus Christ was truly, fully man. That's where we struggle. I was raised, the error I was raised with was that Jesus Christ essentially was God with kind of a man costume on. That he kind of floated a couple of inches above the ground and really was experiencing life as God dressed up as man. That's what I was raised with. That Jesus Christ's experience on earth was what it would be like to be God if God was dressed like a human being and walking around on earth. That's what I was raised with, and that is error. That's what really began to strike me as I wanted to understand this better. And there's a lot of passages that made no sense to me until I began to understand this truth. That Jesus Christ experienced life as a man. 
He lived life as a human being, not as God. So I'm going to talk a little about how that, how that is possible, but I want to make sure you know, for those of you who don't know, like I, I am absolutely convinced of this. Christianity is a rational faith. Everything we believe is rational. We may not understand it, but there's lots of things we don't understand, right? I mean, that's not, that's not impressive. I mean, just go take a, stati- a statistics class, right? I mean, how much, how much Re- Re- Reagan, how much does, I mean, honestly, how much do the rest of us get math? Really? We don't, do we? No, we don't. It's okay. You can say it. We know it. We know it's true. We know that you know, though, so we're comfortable with that. Our professor teaches math, and we go, I'm glad. I'm getting good. He, he seems to know what he's talking about, right? That's what I did in statistics under Dr. Ludorf. Every class was like, uh, he sure seems to enjoy this. I have no idea what the man's talking about, but he's, he seems to, so we're going to just go with that. I know who to call when I have to do statistics later in life. Because he knows. Um, so, so that's okay that we don't understand it. That doesn't mean it's irrational. There's plenty of the things that we don't understand, we should understand them as mysterious, not irrational. Christianity is not an irrational faith. We believe, or hopefully we should believe, that even the things we don't understand still make sense to God. So one of the funny things is when I teach through a theology class, I will teach about the fact that one of the alleged traits of God is called ineffable. Ineffable means unknowable. We cannot possibly know it. The problem is, that's not actually a trait of God's. It is a trait of God's from our perspective, that we will never fully understand the grasp, the greatness, and all, through all eternity would not be sufficient. But he's not, he's not unknowable to himself. He knows himself, and he understands how all this works. So it's not literally a true trait to say that. Um, so the idea of this dual essence is not a problem, but the competing essence seems like it is. Now, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul gives us a hint as he begins to... I didn't give you this one about David, so I'm sorry, but I'll just read it. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is telling us that we should have the attitude of Jesus Christ. The attitude of Jesus Christ who lived this way. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God. So the word there is morpheo. Um, it's not a different word. Schema would indicate something that changes. Morpheo means something that doesn't change, um, typically. Morpheo means it is, this is what it is. This is the shape that it has. This is its Nature is an appropriate way to think of this. And a lot of your Bibles will actually use the word nature here. There's debate on that, but use the word nature. I think that's what Paul is saying. Though he was by the very nature, the very form of God, did not account quality with God something to be grasped. Now, why would he not consider equality with God something to be grasped? Because he was already there, right? He was God, therefore there's no reason to have to... He had no ambition to become God. That's our problem, not his he had no ambition to become God. He was God. So, but emptied himself. The word here in the Greek is to deprive of content, to take away the internal parts. By taking on, again, the morpheo of a servant, the identity of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, um, again, the shape, the construction of man, and being found in human form. This is the word schema. So this, the form, the, sh- the, the actual body parts 
concept could change. Something that needs constant care is the word schema. A squalling, this is, this is how it was described in one of the commentaries, a squalling, ugly, poop-covered baby. That it needs constant care, it has to be carried, nursed, changed, then carried, then nursed, then changed. Then, like that you requires constant care. So he took on even the failing nature of human, the human body. He took that on. That may not be part, by the way, there's, there's, that is not part of our nature. Having a failing, decaying body is not required to be a human. There will come a day when humans do not have failing, decaying bodies. Remember, essence can't change. So you can be human and be in a body that is not failing. None of us have experienced that yet, but we, there will come a day when we will have bodies that do not fail. A great point of contention is whether or not we can live without bodies. Um, I, I tend to say no. My view, because I was trained that way to think by a great professor who I just admired so much and he had such intelligence with it, he kind of trained me in that path. But a great friend of mine, Eric Barton, who's the, the pastor at, at uh, Bethel's downtown campus, he's absolutely convinced that we can live without a body and that there will be a period of time when we don't have one. And so he and I love to discuss it. That'd be a, after getting down here on some Wednesday night, we can debate it. But because um, he's probably right, he's just, he's smart. Um, so, okay, so found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Notice that terminology, becoming obedient. What a fascinating concept. Um, even to the point of death and death on a cross. So this is an amazing picture. I think what helps us understand what the existence of Jesus Christ was is that magic word, emptied. That I believe what we're taught is that Jesus Christ, when bringing on the nature of man, in order to allow it to fit with the nature of God, emptied himself of the things of God, now he still had them, I'm going to show you that in a second, they were still true of him, but he was not experiencing them in order to experience the existence of man. I'm going to show you a few of those, but I want to give you a visual first. So I, there was a day when you could do this anytime you wanted to, but now in this day and age, I can't do this. So, um, uh, so I'm just telling you, this is like an image, that this is a picture I'm going to use, so no one, no one needs to freak out or panic. So if I empty, if I empty, I used to be able to do this like with a youth group. No way I do that now. So if I empty, if I empty this, what is it? But I emptied it. Its identity stays the same. Its nature and essence stays the same. But what it takes to experience being a gun is no longer present. He's just, it's just emptied. It hasn't changed its identity. What it's changed is the expression and expression of its identity. Everybody following that? Now, this is an analogy, which means it fails theologically. Eventually it fails, Okay. So don't, don't put too much into that. Um, don't build too much on that. But it, it helps us, our brains, understand. As John was saying, it helps our little brains get this kind of thing. So as we grapple with that idea of, it be, of Jesus Christ emptying himself to allow himself to experience what it means to live as a human being, that begins to make some sense to us. I'm going to show you some of them. I'm going to warn you that you're going to experience some cognitive dissonance with some of this. Um, this, some of this because, especially if you've been raised Baptist or evangelical, 
you are uncomfortable intuitively with Jesus Christ experiencing life as a man. I'm just going to tell you this up front. So let me say one of the dozen times I will say this to make abundantly clear. Jesus Christ at all points in existence was fully God. At no point did he cease to be 100% verus deus, truly God. So at no point did that change. His experience is what changed when he took on the nature, the essence of man. And I'm going to show you some of that. But that's what got me thinking down this path is I began to be humbled by the fact that Jesus Christ didn't sin. But he was experiencing life as a human. That began to really shock me. That he Now, could he sin? I believe actually the correct theological answer is no. But Satan sure seemed to think he could. I mean, Satan didn't, didn't think he was wasting his time by trying to get him to, I assume. So, so there's a sense in which I like, though I do believe theologically that Jesus couldn't sin, I am moved to worship by the fact that Jesus Christ didn't sin. Because, by the way, if he had, we would be beyond without hope. The cosmic ramifications of Jesus Christ sinning is so unthinkable. Like we, where are, That is something our brains surely could not do. The idea of there being a division in the triune God by sin. I mean, there's just, if, if that's nothing. I mean, theologically, there's nothing there, and that's why I do believe that he could not have. However, he didn't. But remember that it teaches us that, that God doesn't sleep. But Jesus slept. In fact, almost to a comatose exhaustion on the Sea of Galilee in a storm. That's sleeping. If you can sleep in a storm in the dark with lightning and thunder and rain, with multiple boats all around and people screaming, you're asleep. And yet, still fully God, as the, as the world itself responds to his authority when he tells the sea to be still. But that story, is that, that, that account that's found in the Gospels is a beautiful picture of the fact that he was veros homos and still veros deus. Um, that's, there's details there. But I'm going to show you some of my favorites. I'm going to do them out of order, probably, David. Um, so could you look at um, Mark 13, 32 first? So Jesus Christ speaking says this, but concerning that day or hour, speaking of the, the coming of the, the return of the Son of God, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, Jesus Christ, fully God, is omniscient. He knows all things. But there's a problem. Human beings don't know the end. We don't know the day or the hour when Christ, when, when Christ will return, when God will bring judgment on the planet. Apparently, you cannot experience life as a human being if you know this date or this hour. So Jesus Christ, if you can imagine, Almighty God, for 33 years, did not know the day or the hour that he himself was returning to judge the world. This is experiencing life as a man, not as God. This is experiencing life as a human being. Because God knows. He's omniscient. And Jesus Christ knew, but he had emptied himself and set that aside and was not accessing that information because the plan was for him to experience life as a man. Anybody, anybody struggling yet? Is this hard yet? Because that was the easy one. How about this one? This will help you. 
Um, how about in Matthew 4, uh, 1 through 11? This will help you. You got that one? When Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, don't, let's, let's not even touch on the fact that Jesus Christ was led by the Holy Spirit into the, to face the devil. Like, that's got its own issues, right? Let's keep going. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I bet. So the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Has anyone ever wondered why that was a temptation? He's going to turn water to wine in like two chapters. What difference does it make if he turns stone into bread? Right? What difference would that make? Here's my opinion. Jesus Christ did no miracle on earth of his own power because he was experiencing life as a human being. You and I can't perform miracles on our own power, but we can perform miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. Each of us, any of us can. We can see people healed. We can see prayers answered. We can know stuff we couldn't possibly know. Like there's, there are miracles that still happen, but it's not us doing it. It's the Holy Spirit doing it through us. I believe Jesus Christ was also the same boat. He was, because as a human, he was performing miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to make that case for you in just a second stronger. But, so if the plan was for Jesus to come experiencing life as a man, can human beings of their own power turn stones to bread? No, we cannot transmogrify things. We, we still don't have that skill, by the way. 2,000 years later, we still can't change the element of something into something else, right? So, that makes sense. The, the temptation is Satan is going, and I picture this one almost as like a, a trick question. Satan's like, hey, you know what? Before we get started, man, I know you're hungry. I know you don't want to go toe-to-toe with me on an empty stomach. So real quick before we get going, why don't you uh, snap some of those stones in the bread and then we'll get started. And what is Jesus' response? Man. Man shall not live by bread alone. He quotes Deuteronomy. Jesus likes quoting Deuteronomy, by the way, almost as much as Psalms. Man does not live by bread alone, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Isn't that funny that the first thing he describes in this temptation is that him, himself as man? He references the passage that begins man. Man does not live by bread alone. By the way, the next temptation, holy city, pinnacle of the temple. If any of you want to go to Israel, it's still there, by the way. This is one of the few places where you can stand and say with 100% certainty Jesus stood here on this rock. It's not where the rock is supposed to be, but you're still standing there. By the way, Satan stood there too, so it's a little dubious. Like, <laughs> I am standing where the Son of God stood. And, and Satan. Throw your, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you on their hands. They will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against. Don't you? Satan quoting the Psalms. Well, the evil that the, the chutzpah that took, huh? For Satan to quote Psalms. And Jesus' response this time is, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Is he speaking of God the Father? Sure. Is he speaking of himself who is being tested? Yes, I think so. So man does not live by bread alone, but you shouldn't test the Lord your God. And then the third one, when Satan offers him everything, a high mountain and shows him the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. There's about three cities in Israel that claim that was in their city. We don't know. All these I will give you if you will just fall down and worship me. And Jesus' response this time is... Be gone, Satan. It's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus coming as the servant, the God-man servant um, of Almighty God. This is a cool picture of this, understanding this. Now, let me start doing the really hard ones real quick. Yes. 
Jesus, so here's one of the things that I wrestle with. I'm not sure how to do here, but yes. Remember, resist the devil and he will flee is spoken to us, right? And so, absolutely, yeah. When we resist the devil, he flees. The we, we will judge angels. We don't go toe-to-toe with him on our own strength. Not even the archangel Michael does that. But in the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is less powerful. The strongest man lives in us. And so, yes, Jesus Christ, who, by the way, would have had as a sinless person, think about what type of relationship he had with the Holy Spirit. Experientially, that is going to be very different from us because our sin quenches our relationship with the Holy Spirit, which he would not have struggled with that. So, again, his, his experience wasn't just like ours. Here's what's wild. His experience as man is what God intended our experience to be all along. So it's not that he's more than man because he has a perfect relationship with the Spirit. It's that we are less than what God intended, that we don't have a perfect relationship with the Spirit. So, okay, good. Here's some fun ones. Um, How about Mark? uh, What's the Mark 2 one? I've got Mark, I gave you a Mark 2 one. Here's one of my favorites. Jesus is speaking. This will mess with you a little bit, so hold on. So Jesus is speaking, and, and they're, talk, he's de- they're debating law. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, and references David, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus, that's the, the phrase Jesus uses, right? <laughs> I'm, all, I'm always nervous about this one, but we're going to do it anyway. Turn over to 1 Samuel 21.1. David came to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest, not Abiathar. But Jesus, Jesus said it was Abiathar, not Ahimelech. So I'm going to take a second and teach you something. There's lots of explanations for this. One is, he's testing the Pharisees. One of them should have said, don't you mean Ahimelech? And Jesus would have said, right, good, glad you're paying attention. It may be that Abiathar was famous and Ahimelech wasn't. That like if I said, what was in the days of President Polk? And all of you would have no idea what I was talking about. But if I said the days of President Lincoln, at least some of you would have at least a guess at when President Lincoln was president, right? Maybe it's that. Maybe the book of 1 Samuel. There's a, there is that the 1 Samuel does not have who the right priest was when David came. Or maybe Abiathar and Ahimelech were kind of there at the same time, even though Ahimelech was the real priest and maybe Abiathar was. There's a lot of explanations, but let me, let me explain something that will help you. Jesus Christ was sinless, not flawless. For us, for us, everything is infected by sin. We were born on the wrong team. But for Adam and Jesus Christ, in order to sin meant you had to disobey. They were not infected by sin. Adam and Jesus weren't. They were not infected like we are. So they had to rebel, to disobey in order to sin. For us, everything we do falls short of the glory of God. But if we're not careful, again, we have this image of Jesus kind of hovering two inches off the ground. How many times did Jesus have to hit a nail in order to put it in the board? Was it always once? Because that would be flawless. Never stubbed his toe? You ever thought about whether Jesus ever missed a question on a Hebrew test? We know he learned. He had to grow. 
in obedience even, the book of Hebrews tells us. He had to learn obedience. We just read a passage that referenced that. So the idea that Jesus didn't have to learn means he wasn't flawless. It means he was sinless. And so it may be, and it is not inappropriate to believe, that if Peter had said, I thought that was a Himalek, that Jesus might have said, right, a Himalek. That, doesn't, that would not be heresy. Now, you may be uncomfortable with that. I know I'm uncomfortable with that. But it's not error to think that Jesus Christ would have ever made a mistake because we start presenting him as flawless, and now he's not experiencing life as a human. Now he's, now he's experiencing life as God. Again, no sin. But to think that he never, he never hit his own thumb with a hammer? Doesn't the book of Hebrews tell us he's tempted in all ways as we were? Can you be tempted in all ways that we are if you've never hit your thumb with a hammer? If you've never had a wheelbarrow turn over? Y'all have heard me talk about that. The true test of character is an entire load of firewood slowly tipping to the ground. If Jesus never experienced something like that, he's never been tempted like I have. So I think this is important. Did Jesus ever get sick? Did he ever wake up at four in the morning unable to breathe because he had a cold? I think he did. He experienced life as a human. If we're not careful, we fall back into some early Roman teaching, which was that Jesus experienced life flawlessly like their gods did when they came to earth. But that's not the picture of Scripture. I mean, Jesus wanders off from his parents when he's in Jerusalem. Even if that wasn't sin, he certainly got in trouble with mom and dad. So I think that's part of what for us to wrestle through is to remember Jesus Christ experienced life as a human. That should shock us to realize that even though he was truly experiencing life as a human, he never sinned. He never looked on somebody else's paper. He never cheated off somebody else's homework. When he stubbed his toe, he never cursed God. Like these are things that are shocking to me. And most shocking to me is the fact that when he woke up at four in the morning and couldn't breathe, all he had to do was access his divinity and heal himself. And he never did because he was living in obedience to the Father. That's huge to me. Okay, how about a little bit? I'll now take a little break from the really scary hard ones. How about Mark 6, 5? In Mark 6, 5, we get a reference here. And this is interesting because Luke and Matthew clean this up a little bit. They use a different word here than Mark uses. When Jesus goes home to his hometown, to Nazareth, and he's teaching them, they get mad because to them, he's just the, the the son of Joseph and Mary, who is he to come to claim to be some religious leader, right? Look at what Mark says, though. That Jesus Christ could do no mighty work there. Very clear in the Greek, could do no mighty work there. Except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I mean, like, obviously, right? I mean, <laughs> but, but he was, and, and by the way, what's the next verse? Do you have the next one, by the way? You probably didn't warn you about that. I don't know how hard that is for you. The next verse talks about the fact that he marvels at their lack of faith. So what's happening here? Well, what I think you see that's happening is that the Holy Spirit is unwilling to perform miracles for this faithless people. And Jesus is impressed by the fact that the Holy Spirit is willing to perform no miracles because of their lack of faith. He's impressed by that. Now, don't picture Jesus going to a man with a crippled hand and trying to heal it and failing. I think that would be error. 
But the fact that the man with the crippled hand came to Jesus or didn't come to Jesus. And Jesus is amazed by the fact that the Spirit refuses to work for these faithless people. It's a little sobering, honestly. But notice that Jesus is unable to perform miracles. Well, obviously Jesus isn't unable as in he is God the Son. He can do whatever he wants to. The whole world was created by, through, and for him. But because he is dependent on the Holy Spirit to perform these miracles, because he's experiencing life as a man, and the Holy Spirit is unwilling to do it, these people go unhealed. They go without the signs that many other cities were able to receive. I think that explains how that happened, is that idea. There's another one in John 7 that was one of the early ones for me that I ran into that that I was really stuck with. (laughs) After this, Jesus went about Galilee. He would not go to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. The Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works you're doing. They, they weren't actually, no one knows, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So they're being sarcastic, by the way. What they were saying was sarcasm. Well, if you're really who you say you are, you should go and present yourself to the whole world. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. You know how uncomfortable we are with this? Um, we are, we're going to get there. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it and that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet come. Okay? Pretty, pretty clear. It's not time for him to go yet. Some of your versions in this verse say, you go up to the feast, I am not yet going up to the feast. But that yet is not in the Greek. But we're so uncomfortable with how this plays out that literally people later added in a word yet there. Because this is such an uncomfortable passage. If you're thinking Jesus Christ was experiencing life as God, this is uncomfortable. If you understand he's experiencing life as man, it's not at all. Because what happens next? After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Okay, good. We're, we're good. After his brothers was gone, he went to the feast. Oops. When I taught this to a sweet lady who had not ever read the Bible, in fact, she couldn't even read when, when I read this, when we discussed this, she immediately said, did Jesus tell a little fib? Now, what's the problem with Jesus telling a little fib? That's sin, right? So that's not one of the options. He is without deceit. He's not even, you can't even have him being deceptive here. It can't be that he's like, well, I didn't technically lie. I did say I wouldn't go yet. You can't even have him being deceptive because no deceit is found in him. Then what's the explanation? Yeah, something he changed his mind. The Spirit revealed to him that now was time. And that may, that's not a problem at all. If you're experiencing life as a human being, you go, no, I'm not going to that. And then your family leaves. And then you go... Ooh, what's that urging I'm sensing inside of me? You know what? My, in his case, my perfect relationship with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is telling me it's time to go. But I don't want to be, I don't want to be a distraction to the Jews, so I'm just going to go up there and see what, see what plays out. So I'm going to go quietly. That's not a problem. It is a problem if Jesus is, omnip, is omniscient while on earth. If Jesus knows all things, then he knew he was going when he said he wouldn't go. He is omniscient, but he's not experiencing omniscience. He's actually experiencing life as a human being. 
That is humbling to me. Every time I think about it, it blows me away that Jesus came and was willing to experience this cruddy life with all its great joys and with all its horrible traumas. Do we ever think about the fact that there, why don't we hear about Joseph after he's 12, after Jesus is 12? You know what the assumption is? He's dead. So somewhere between 12 and 30, Jesus lost his dad on earth, his earthly father. How did he grieve that? I mean, that's not fun. His brothers didn't believe in him. They thought he was, he went back home. He's betrayed left and right by people. I've always thought one of the hardest things, I'm, a, I'm kind of a, a, a relational, um, uh, what do you call that? Sent, I'm a really sentimental person relationship-wise. That's something John and I very much so share. Is this, like, we hate to be left out of when our friends do stuff and, and you just, is this relational, sentimental thing going on all the time? And for me, when I've, when I've read the story of Jesus, the thought of Jesus investing in all these men and every single one of them bails on him on the night of his capture, I mean, just, that would just crush me. I mean, maybe you're someone who's, who that's not that big a deal to you, but the thought of all my guys bailing on me when I needed them the most, I think, I think that would even distract me from some of the other tortures going on. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I've never been faced the others, but... Man, it just, it's amazing me what he was willing to come and face. So he was experiencing life as a man. God does not sleep. The Old Testament is clear about that. And yet Jesus slept. God is not tempted, we know. And yet Jesus was clearly tempted. I am moved by the fact that Jesus um, did not sin. So, real quickly, anything about that, and, and we're going to touch it, we'll get this next week because we're out of time. We're going to talk about the fact that Jesus is still man, which maybe you've not thought about that. We're going to talk about that next time. Um, we're going to talk about some of the application and implications of some of this stuff as well. The fact that Jesus did not sin, even though he's experiencing life as a human being. Um, that's an amazing concept. It really is amazing. If you have any questions about whether Jesus Christ was truly God, we can discuss that as well. But again, like I said, most of the time, that's not that. For most of our evangelical audiences, that part's not hard. We've been raised on that. But the idea that he experienced life as a man is pretty amazing. Um, any, anything I need to clarify, because I don't want anyone to walk out of here with any heretical viewpoint, um, and then that, that gets spread around. Chris thought Jesus was not a God anymore. Like, yeah, what you got? Yeah. Great question. Yeah, so, so we, we have built a lot on that, which we shouldn't have done, because we treated Jesus as a Hellenist. Repeat the question. Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, and so um, we've treated Jesus as a Hellenist and not understood him as a Jew, and so we've made lots of mistakes about that um, because of that. So when we, when we look at the passage, well, I'll just tell you, so I don't have to look it up because we're really out of time, but... I want you to, to hear this, and this which is significant, which is Jesus is doing what any good Jew does, which is he's quoting a psalm in his death. The 22nd psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the worlds of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer by night, and, you, and I find no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. 
But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb, and you, took, you made me trust you at my mother's breast. I was cast On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one else to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They opened wide their mouths like a ravening and roaring lion, and poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in my breast. My strength is dried up like a piece of pottery. My tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they are casting lots. And it keeps going on another few verses. I believe Jesus is... So here's the... Post, uh, all the, verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. Before him shall bow down and go into the dust, even the one who would not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations that they will come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has finished it. So this idea that, that what Jesus is doing is in front of a Jewish audience, people walking backwards and forwards, that Jesus is beginning the 22nd Psalm. He's identifying with King David. He feels forsaken. He's not any more literally forsaken than King David was. Of course, there's no division within the triune nature of God. That would not be possible. God doesn't have to turn his back on him. No, God's wrath is being poured out on him. That's even worse. It'd be bad enough if God just turned his back. What God is doing is pouring out his wrath on the sin of mankind. But I believe also Jesus is quoting the 22nd Psalm, which is a psalm that Jews quote when they're in trouble. It's a, quote, a, Jew, a, a, a psalm they quote when they face challenges. But the 22nd Psalm is filled with prophecies about exactly what Jesus is experiencing in that moment. So part of what he's doing is he's starting a psalm that every good Jew in that would have been heard him would have finished the psalm in their head. And as they're working through the psalm and they get to that point, wait, my hands and my feet have they pierced. They're gambling for my clothes. Every one of my bones is out of joint. The, even the one who's not willing to keep himself alive, God will bless them. God is doing this. So that's, that's what I believe is going on with that. And I think if we're going to, unfortunately, we've sometimes built too much theology on Jesus saying those words when we should have been understanding it probably. I did for a long time until I understood him as, understood that this is what Jews do. And so, um, as a good Jew, Jesus is citing the 22nd Psalm, just like any other good Jew would under those conditions, especially given that he is the fulfillment of the 22nd Psalm. So, cool stuff. Okay, we'll pick up more on that next time and see how far we get, and then we'll jump into the other topic. So, that's fun. I love this stuff. It just eats me up. Father, thank you so much that you are almighty God and that you sent your son who though he was God, though he is God, took on the nature of man and came experience life with us, truly in a sense slummed with us. <clears throat> that he faced what we face. That he dealt with what we deal with. That he was challenged by things, that he had to learn to obey, that he had to grow in wisdom and stature. Lord, that, 
that it, it makes him exactly the high priest who we so desperately need, that he knows us and he understands us and he's experienced what it's like to live like one of us. He doesn't just know it, he's felt it, he's experienced it. He has felt the flesh break. He has felt the heart break. God, that, that he now stands to this day as our representative to you is something we can be so thankful for. And God, that, that someday even we will be able to see the wounds in his hands and his feet and his side. Um, Lord, as he continues to bear those signs in his body. God, I, I am so moved that your son, I'm so appreciative. Thank you, God, that your son did not sin, that he obeyed you in all things, and that because he did, he could pay the price for each of us. And for that, Lord, we give you thanks and praise that we don't even know how to say, that you provided that way for us through your son. It's in his name we ask it all. Amen.